Good afternoon, 7investors, and welcome to the Monday edition of 7investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks-Klein. I am the host of the program. I'm being joined today by Steve Symington. Steve, yesterday was Mother's Day. That means today that you can break out whatever the equivalent is of an advent calendar on the countdown to, of course, the most disappointing holiday of the year, Father's Day. Uh, <laughs> right, right now, I can feel the grill tools being uh, being packaged up. They mm. might even just take the ones you got last year, put them back in a box with a ribbon. Uh, it is basically the opposite. Did you have a fun Mother's Day? Did you, did, did you and the family go anywhere? Yeah. Um, yeah, we went, uh, had a couple drinks at a local brewery and then uh, had our our 13-year-old watch your brothers. So that was nice. And then uh, we all went out to dinner at a uh, at a different brewery uh, later that <laughs> evening. So it was, it was a good time. We did a family dinner as well. It's uh, It's been pretty rare to eat out. So to go someplace nice uh, that was still, you know, had some basic procedures. We had uh, we had outside. You didn't have to, uh, but it just felt a little bit better. It was, it was a very normal feeling evening. Uh, and I finally broke tradition. Most years we did that like weird, you go out at like two o'clock and then it's like, <laughs> I had brunch at two o'clock. Like, do I eat dinner tonight? Do I not? Yep. Like, we just went for dinner. Like, we went out at five thirty. We wanted there to still be light, you know, while we were, were dealing with sort of a crowded area. Uh, so it was enjoyable. And then we came home. Uh, and because I'm old, Steve, I don't watch Saturday Night Live on Saturday night. We watch Saturday Night Live the next day. Uh, the big draw last night was Elon Musk was right. the host. <laughs> um, I wasn't a big fan of that. I'm going to be honest. I, I I'm not. A big fan of, of Elon's uh, histrionics, his manipulating Dogecoin, sort of all the sort of games he plays. I understand there's some some reasons he's doing that that maybe are out of his control. He talked about having Asperger's a little bit on the show. My actually complaint was, and I know you've only seen part of it, my complaint was they didn't protect him. In the past, when they have non-actors on, they do things that don't rely on that person's ability to deliver a joke. He kind of did an unfunny monologue. They put him in skits where kind of the joke was, look, it's Elon Musk playing a character. Um, you know, I'll go back and say like the Wayne Gretzky episode, one of the best ones ever. They didn't do that to Wayne Gretzky. I, I did not think it was a good show. What were your thoughts, Steve? Uh it was. I, I think it was a good show for people who understood uh, all of the the sort of swirling controversy around him and cryptocurrencies and Tesla and just the way he acts in general. And uh, I, I think it was one of those things where if you're a fan of Elon Musk, you probably enjoyed it because you knew all the jokes. And if you're not a fan or you're unfamiliar, you were kind of like, yeah, I don't know. And uh, you know, it was interesting. You know, the the whole. Uh, <clears throat> sort of for the first time publicly, you know, saying I have Asperger's syndrome, or at least I'm the first person on the show to admit it. Uh, which, which, by he, the way, is not true because Dan, Dan Aykroyd, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there, there was that. And, uh, you know, there were some other people like, wait a second, isn't that like kind of like Michael Jordan saying he likes gambling a little bit on the show? Like that was that was sort of something everybody kind of like said, well, wait, I thought we kind of knew that. But, um, you know, it's it was it was interesting, though. There were some moments. uh like I'm, I'm reinventing electric vehicles. Did you really think I'd be this kind of chill, normal guy? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, seriously, I, I, people. I, th I think we've learned that that in most cases, genius comes with oddity. Uh, Steve Jobs was was kind of an odd guy. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of people that have that level of genius, you know, it's why generally the best players don't make the best coaches. They're just operating yeah. on a different playing field, uh, literally, than other people. So 
we're going to segue a little bit here. I could talk Saturday Night Live all night. It was really an interesting episode, but we're not going to do that. We, of course, would like your questions and comments. We know it's a Monday after a holiday. Probably a, a lot of people had a drink or two. Uh, probably not shuttling between breweries. That's not possible most places, though that is actually possible here in West Palm under normal circumstances. We have about a dozen breweries. Uh, but we are going to talk about Walmart's sneaky play to become a player in the healthcare industry. Why do I say sneaky? Because Walmart has been providing some telehealth options to its 1.6 million employees for quite a while. Uh, Steve, are there 1.6 million people in Montana? <laughs> no. <laughs> there are not. I'm pretty sure it's closer to 1.1 million or so. Uh, but yeah, so we only just passed a million a few years ago. The, or so. the state of Walmart is bigger than the state of Montana. That is important to say. But Walmart has bought MeMD. That's a company that in 2010 uh, was founded in 2010. They deliver medical and mental health visits to about 5 million members worldwide. So add in the Walmart employees, and that's a 6.6 .6 million customer base. They have 30,000 clients. Um, Steve, just broad picture view. Is this one of those areas where there's going to be so much competition? We have your Teladoc. We have the traditional health insurers, which are either using their own or some maybe are using Teladoc white label. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of other players, Amazon, uh, Google. Everybody wants to get into this. Is yep. this going to be a, a, a game with no winners or can Walmart actually take this on? You know, part of it's going to be it an experienced thing, but that's part of the worry uh, about Teladoc, right? And and we've kind of voiced this before on live streams is saying, you know, it's not really up to the patients. Like if a patient is presented with a telemedicine solution, they're not going to say, no, 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 no. I want Walmart's version. Like don't, you know, get this Teladoc away from me. It's going to be more about relationships and, and current uh, enterprise customers and basically kind of how far their feelers go in the industry. And uh, so Walmart obviously has, you know, the scale. Uh, that's that's the beautiful thing uh, about their their movements in. And it takes someone large, someone like Amazon. And uh, yeah, Teladoc is, is one of those big players. I think there's room for multiple winners as well. So that's something that's important to consider. So let me bring up the failing of Teladoc. I like Teladoc, but here's the problem. Teladoc is a virtual network that obviously has partnerships in the real world, but there are limitations to what you can do with the virtual visit. There, You can't take my blood pressure right now at a virtual visit. Now, do I think that's going to change where something like Teladoc and Apple Watch or whoever are partnering and you're getting much better uh, health diagnostics? Yes, but that's not right now. I can go to wa a Walmart appointment. Now, if I'm a Walmart customer, I probably have some level of trust in Walmart. I know where the Walmart is. Uh, right. Do I think this would work better with Target? Yes, but Target's already partnered with CVS, so they're probably not going to, to have a massive uh, you know, spin on this. But if I go to the Walmart visit and my symptoms present a certain way, that teledoctor could, in theory, ask my permission to send my records to a real doctor. That real doctor could be located in one of the 4,700 Walmart pharmacies. Now, are there some problems with this? Yes. You'd ideally want a separate entrance. You don't want a person who might have you know, the bubonic plague to walk through a Walmart, though I'd argue that's like 20% of the Walmart customers anyway. Yeah. Um, it, you, know, you, you, you need to make it so there's actual exam space, but CVS has done this pretty quickly in spinning up its minute clinics where you can get a lot of healthcare uh, in, a, in a CVS. I actually do think Walmart could do this. Uh, Steve, would you consider taking your kids to a Walmart for their pediatrician appointment and you can go shopping while they're getting exam? I mean, I know some of your kids are a little young for that, but um, you know, once your kids hit their teen years and you don't have to be in with them, 
could you combine those two things and it becomes really convenient? I, I mean, I could. Uh, I'm not sure I, I would. I, I think there's sort of this this sort of bias, like taking your your kids to Walmart for a you know a doctor's visit. Eh, I, I don't know. Like, I think a lot of people are going to hesitate because of sort of the Walmart value. Uh, you know, and you touched on something interesting that that was sort of unintentional. Uh, real doctor versus virtual doctor. You know, we're talking in-person doctor. Obviously, they're real doctors that they're speaking to through this. Um, but they, they will have that to overcome. And it feels, um, you know, it'd feel a little bit like a Walmart optical clinic or something like that. So uh, certainly, you know, that that's an option uh, for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people will. Accept that's that. an important model to bring up because there have been optical stores in Targets and Walmart and Costco. And even though I wear glasses and my glasses, well, not these since I got laser surgery, but my pre-laser eye surgery glasses were very expensive. I had a very high subscription uh, prescription and the one time I went to a low-cost eyeglass place, I went to a Stanton Optical, um, and it was disappointing. The glasses weren't as nice. They didn't fit as well. It felt like you were paying less uh, yeah. because you were getting less. That scared me away from that. I think that might scare me away from Walmart. But let me throw out something disruptive. We're going to talk SpaceX a little bit later. So feel free. Get your questions in, whatever it is you'd like to talk Virgin about. Virgin Galactic. Here. Keep that in mind. Uh, well, yeah. Excuse me. We're going to talk Virgin Galactic, not SpaceX. We're going to talk about space through Virgin Galactic. What if Walmart tried something different? Primary care as a service, meaning you pay, so you're a family that has your basic bad healthcare that maybe pays for one well physical a year, and then you have a huge deductible. What if Walmart said for $49 a month, you can come in whenever you want, you know, you don't feel well, come in, we'll cover that. Do you think yeah. that type of model because insurance is broken. Could that type of model disrupt the way insurance works? Yeah, uh, most certainly. And, and, you know, then you're bringing up something that other companies are doing, you know, like One Medical, for example, um, primary care as a service. There are local uh, clinics actually here in town that have a similar program where rather than have, um, you know, sort of traditional uh, insurance, even um, they have pay us this much every month and we'll cover everything, you know, up to within reason, rather. Um, that's not going to cover like open heart surgery or something. Right. Like that. And, and that, yeah. that is the problem with this is mm -hmm. that you might find, you know, what we would think of as concierge services for the rich. So if you're yes. wealthy, you might have health insurance, but on top of that, you may pay for some really nice, you know, <clears throat> private healthcare, uh, you know, and better healthcare. This mm -hmm. might be a more affordable option for that, where you basically say, okay, you, you work at, you know, you work retail, you work at some place where your health insurance is maybe just okay. I know we have a $3,000 deductible, but the nonprofit my wife for uh, works for gives us $750 a quarter in, in an HSA. So that covers that deductible if we need to. But if you had that sort of typical 3,000 individual, 6,000 family deductible, and didn't want to go to the doctor when you think you might have strep throat because you're going to have to pay for that whole appointment yourself. I yeah. actually think this kind of service could be disruptive. And Walmart serves a notoriously underserved market. I don't, I don't want to say that, you know, it's not like all Walmart customers. They're obviously too big a brand to, to have any sort of one customer profile. Yeah, but yeah. very clearly, Walmart is a value play. So Steve, I don't think we're going to find an answer here on this one. Uh, but uh, why don't you give some thoughts? This is a a, a wild west of a space. I mean, we read, we read off, uh, Teladoc's down about 47% year to date. Amwell's down 67%. And I think a lot of that is because when you have Amazon and Walmart sniffing around, yeah. people get a little bit worried. Why don't you close this out and then we'll take some questions and comments. 
You know, uh, I again, I think there's room for multiple winners in the space, and I do appreciate the relative value of pure plays also. And and I do think also that companies like Teladoc and Amwell, uh, their recent declines are not only because of, you know, competitive concerns. We've seen a broader pullback that's ongoing today. Look at the market right now uh, and a lot of high growth, kind of hyper growth tech stocks and uh, and richly valued growth stocks in particular uh, with, with big potential like Teladoc that have been crushed uh, in part because of this sort of, it's like a, a bear market within a bull market. It's this weird thing we've kind of been seeing. So there's part of that. And I think there's multiple winners in the space. Uh, and also, uh, I think if, if some of these remain depressed long enough, we're going to see a little bit of M&A probably happening uh, with some, some, some of these big boys uh, who could step out and say, do I do I acquire Teladoc? Uh, do I do I suck in you know more of these? And and that's why you know you see obviously Walmart um, with MeMD uh, acquiring them. I don't know what the price was. No, Maybe there there was no price disclosed. Okay. This is probably a relative. You know, for Walmart, this is a small transaction. Right. This is kind of like, and we talk about this a lot. When Apple buys some like app you've never heard of, and they really yeah. just want that functionality in the team. But this is Walmart firing a shot against the bow. This is this is Walmart saying, okay, we have some infrastructure for our employees. Now we're going to take this out to customers. That's happening at the same time that Amazon is taking its customer, uh, its yeah. employee program, and bringing it to customers. Amazon's using a hybrid model, and that's what I think Walmart will do. The Amazon doctor uh, on a teleappointment can send out a nurse to take your blood pressure, collect samples, uh, you know, wh whatever a nurse might do. So you're mm -hmm. getting this sort of comprehensive model. Look, nobody likes to go to the doctors for a physical. If I could do the talking part of my physical with a doctor in telehealth and then a nurse came by for a few minutes and, and, yeah. and, and took my blood pressure and, 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 you know, a couple other things, that's how insurance worked for a lot of years. It's actually, you, you know, I've used lemonade. Lemonade does not require a medical visit. Uh, yeah. And that was a big part of its appeal. Uh, Andrew Connolly, we're going to take your question when we get to talking about uh, Virgin Galactic in the next segment because it's a good one. But I wanted to uh, seg a little bit and take the question from Danielle, if you want to bring that up, Sam. Hi, guys. Do you have any thoughts on, uh, on NanoX following the first FDA clearance uh, and the stock keeps going down? So this is not a company I follow. I do know that this is a very, very speculative company. And I would not put a lot of thought into what its stock does based on any individual thing. This is a company that is likely to be very, very volatile. It still has a very long road to yeah. prove that it's viable. There's really high upside. There's also a risk of zero. Steve, your thoughts here? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, there, there's there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, that FDA clearance is a is a big step forward, but uh, there's lots of work. Uh, to be done. And, and uh, that was another one of those stocks. NNOX is the, the ticker that uh, was sort of victim to this broader pullback and high growth, uh, very speculative names, uh, a very speculative name, lots of volatility yet to go, uh, both up and down, I think for that one. When you're buying a company because of what you think it might do, you really have to tune out the stock price. Right. Uh, you know, so we talk about this a lot with Max Chatsko uh, and Dana Abramovitz as well. If you're picking a biotech stock, that has a three to five year to not just get approvals, but also to prove market viability, yeah. it's not going to play out quickly. And this is one where 
if you believe in it, if you're even just taking a flyer on it, which is not something I, I recommend doing, you almost have to tune out for three years. And yeah. sure, you, you can, there could be some things that derail you faster than the path to success would be. Um, but I wouldn't put a little, lot of stock in quarterly earnings. Uh, and this is a good segue because, Steve, you wanted to talk Virgin Galactic. Um, this cool. is a company yeah. I have very mixed feelings about. But they're reporting tomorrow, and that's or tonight uh, after the bell, and that is actually not particularly important in their story. Is that fair to yeah. say? Yeah, uh, it, it's not. Uh, and actually, first, I would like to bring up the the comment from uh, Andrew Connolly. I think it's important to make the distinction between Virgin Galactic and Virgin Orbit. He continues, I'm not sure there was a difference when I first, I knew there was a difference when I first looked into SPCE, which is the ticker for Virgin Galactic. And actually, I believe uh, Virgin Orbit was before uh, Virgin Galactic went public via SPAC, was actually a spin-out. So they used to be the same, uh, but not for publicly traded investors who own the stock. So yes, there is a distinction between the two. We are talking about Virgin Galactic right now, ticker SPCE. They report after the bell. Uh, recall, they were originally supposed to report on the 4th. Uh, last week. And they delayed that because of some new guidance that the SEC issued on accounting protocols for warrants issued by SPACs. So they had to do a little bit of uh, restating with their financials. Really doesn't change anything about their business. Uh, but the big thing that we really need to keep in mind is that, I mean, the stock's been smashed after they've twice delayed their most recent test flight. They said that they were shooting to actually have a rocket powered test flight sometime this month back then when they delayed it. And that's what people are going to be looking for right now. Uh, people kind of know what to expect, what their cash burn is. They have plenty of cash on hand after uh, some capital raises and you know going public in the first place. But uh, that's what people are looking for right now is confirmation of a test flight window for Virgin Galactic. And that is sort of going to be one of those near term catalysts for the stock because it will be the start of several rocket powered test flights that should culminate by the end of the summer uh, in bringing uh, their founder, uh, Richard Branson, to space in one of the test flights before they assume uh, before they begin commercial rocket powered flights for their paying customers who've already reserved them. So that's kind of where we stand right now. Uh, and that's what we'll be watching tonight with Virgin Galactic. So let me jump in with a couple of things. First of all, putting Richard Branson on the first flight <laughs> is a terrible idea for anyone who's ever seen a, a, a movie. Like this is <laughs> one of two ways. Yeah. It's triumphant or he dies. You don't mm -hmm. want to do this. I understand, but I actually think all of this is a bit of sleight of hand. Steve, we've talked about this company before. Mm -hmm. Their business is largely not space tourism. I, I, they're doing a whole theater where they hired a former Disney executive and you don't just, sure. get, on the, you don't just get on the plane, you have like four days of flight training, but basically it's space camp with, with, with an actual flight where you're in a, a suborbit for 17 minutes, you have a little bit of, of weightlessness, it's pretty cool. But I yeah. would argue that their business isn't $250,000 suborbital flights. Uh, it really is long distance travel. That's going to yeah. something that's going to take what years to play out? Is that that's a going to take a timeline? couple of years? Yeah, but we're we're in the early stages of uh, of basically getting. You know, they still need uh, to get a couple uh, approvals, um, so uh, FCC approvals and uh, FAA approvals, Federal Aviation Administration approvals. They have two more out of I think twenty nine. Uh, to finish. And those should be achieved along with this test flight that they're planning for May uh, it is a revenue generating test flight. They're actually going to be uh, revenue generating payloads for, Na for NASA on this in addition to the pilots. So, uh, but the big thing is the, the, the uh, FAA approvals that they will get with this next test flight. And then um, 
that's sort of the hope for investors who've really been largely disappointed over the last uh, year or so with these couple delays of test flights because of uh, EMI impacts, the electromagnetic interference that basically caused a computer to reboot right as the rocket was supposed to be igniting and a safety protocol was was initiated and the plane landed. It just glided safely uh, back down because they sort of aborted that rocket uh, launch. But basically, they're putting safety above all, which I think should be um, encouraging. But yes, over the long term, you uh, look at sort of hyper orbit travel. So, you know, you're talking about traveling from here to Paris in an hour or something, right? And uh, that's the idea is that they can disrupt uh, over the long term, sort of this long distance, long haul travel uh, niche. But there is a market for people to pay 250 grand and the price they want to bring down uh, for these low orbit flights where you can actually see earth below you, right? It's sort of this one of a kind experience as it stands. And hopefully it should be commonplace because they want to scale that to have multiple spaceports, 400 flights a year. Um, so there will be space tourism will be a significant revenue generator, but longer term, the even bigger one is those intercontinental flights. Yeah. And there, look, there are people that will pay a million dollars to have lunch with Warren Buffett or something right. like that. that. That is a limited market. This company's valuation is not going to be based on its ability to, to offer those flights. It's going to be on its ability to get payloads into space, which is, which is somewhat uh, part of the Virgin Orbit mission, but obviously they are using uh, some of these ships to, to get things into space. There is also really that greater long-term. And I bring this up because if this is a company you invest in, Mm-hmm. I understand that there are some bumps in the road. Nobody wants to invest in the space company that like when the protocol kicks in, just overrides it and they duct tape the propeller on or whatever. They don't use a propeller that, you know, you obviously don't want that. You want safety to be the highest thing. And whether yeah. this happens now or two years from now, even though there is some competition in this space with that, with Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin sort of putting a toe into the space tourism water, that's not the goal of Blue Origin. This is really... Uh, kind of a space that's only going to have a few people in it. It's very, very expensive. It's not like tomorrow it, this is going to work and you're going to get like, seven, you know, this isn't frozen yogurt shops. You're not going to have a successful TCBY and then yeah. somebody opens, you know, a name, a, a no-name brand down the street. This is a long-range play. So safety is better. The timetable actually doesn't matter at all. Um, and don't watch earnings today, other than if you're curious as to where that launch is going to go. Uh, Steve, are they launching out of Florida right now? I know we have a lot of those here. Uh, Spaceport America, I think, is uh, was Arizona, right? Um, that's where we're – yeah. So they actually had that. It was a, a mostly taxpayer-funded uh, arrangement, and uh, they will build uh, multiple spaceports. They have a couple other agreements in different countries to, to manage this. So, And I think, you know, it is important to note that in the near term, uh, you know, they are looking at a market, you know, assuming they they ramp and it, it is simply space tourism. Uh, that's a couple billion in revenue a year that can really provide them with much needed cash flow uh, in order to fund their further expansion efforts. Uh, the new plane, uh, the new space plane that they unveiled that they're only just starting to test uh, and building multiple other planes. So uh, really early stages, uh, very high potential, super high risk, and uh, a heck of a lot of volatility. So uh, definitely one of those names that is uh, stressful to own, uh, but high risk, potentially high reward. And uh, I do have a stake uh, for full disclosure. Yeah. 
I New Mexico. Fully, Max Lucas reminded us, by the way, Desert in New Mexico. That's where it was. I fully hope you get a complimentary Virgin Cola on your $250,000 space flight. Uh, one of the Virgin brands also bought the high-speed train that uh, I'm pointing outside because mm -hmm. where we used to live, it was about a quarter mile away. It's yeah. about a mile and a half from here. But that is a train that gets you to Fort Lauderdale or Miami and eventually Orlando and, and the Disney properties uh, in much faster times than you could do it. It's also a pretty unpleasant ride. Uh, so it's great to take the train. It's expensive. Pre-pandemic, there was a model for it. Uh, you're also going to see Virgin Cruise Lines kick off this year. None of these companies are actually affiliated, uh, but Richard Branson is an absolute genius. I saw him speak at a, at a convention a few years ago. He's a captivating guy. I prefer yeah. he not blow up in space. I know <laughs> he really wants to be on that flight. Maybe go on the third flight, but uh, yeah. he's not asking my opinion. I, I do have a, a copy of his book signed by him, but I didn't get that in person. Uh, it was just a stack of books for, for people at the convention. Uh, yeah. That being said, Steve. One, one more thing. If we still have another minute on Virgin Galactic, uh, there are a, a lot of people uh, that I've seen talk about, you know, uh, Branson Steak, for example. They say, oh, he sold all these shares, uh, you know, and, and Ark is selling shares and Chamath is selling shares. Uh, it's important to note that, you know, with the exception of Ark, which never had a very large position in the first place, uh, Branson still owns, I think it was like indirectly through his uh, Virgin affiliates, 56.8 million shares. It was only 10% of his stake that he sold down to help keep his other businesses alive. And Chamath also owns, I think, almost 16, it's like 15.6 or 15.8 million shares uh, through the sort of SPAC vehicle that they brought this public. So they still have significant stakes in the company. That's another thing where I'm relatively unconcerned uh, with the recent insider sales. So that's also a point of nuance you're only going to get here on 7investing. If you read the headline, on, I'm not going to pick on any particular news site, but, but Bloomberg, CNBC, CNN, <laughs> whoever it is. And I'm, again, I'm not yeah. picking on any of them. Anyone. Your average news reporter, and I am a journalist by background. I've been this news reporter who didn't get to focus on the nuances of the stock market. Mm -hmm. They are going to see founder sells stake and that's going to be reported that way founder sells stake what you're not going to get is the next level of analysis why did the founder sell the stake because richard branson's choice was raise some cash personally or lay people off at a bunch of other businesses i own and as we're seeing now with the restaurant industry especially here in tourist driven south florida yeah. once employees go it is very difficult to get them back so if he had you know, trained workers at the airline, at the cruise line, you know, you don't want to lay off your cruise ship captain at, or your cruise director. As, as ridiculous as that sounds, those are not, there are not a lot of people ready to step into those positions. You know, when you're in an industry that that's a constrained size, you know, pilots are hard to come by right now uh, because people left the field and retired or aged out. So this is one of those things where, did he want to sell those shares? No, probably not. Was it the right move as a human being to sell those shares? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Steve, we're going to hit the home stretcher. So that was pointing out what we do at 7investing. And we do this all the time. So we have public-facing content and members-only content. In our members-only content, we aren't giving you traditional earnings or takes. Uh, you know, a couple of companies that I follow for 7investing report uh, this week or next, and I'm not going to tell you they beat earnings by this or the earnings per share were blah, blah, blah. Robots can literally do that. There are robots writing those stories. I'm going to tell you this is what happened and this is what this means in relation to why I own this stock or why I've recommended this stock or what this means for the industry. This is going to be a public facing piece. I'm actually working on a sort of what's the movie theater industry going to look like? Because 
you know, we've seen people willing to come back to the theaters for some big blockbusters. On the other hand, and I hate to pick on this movie, but we saw nobody talked about what a bomb Wonder Woman 1984 was because a ton of people watched it. If that had been released yeah. in theaters, it would have lost $200 million. Instead, it was released on HBO Max and it was terrible, but we all went, <laughs> all right, it was free. I get HBO Max anyway. Like, like that has changed the world. So I'm going to give the perspective of someone who not only follows that industry, but also my previous place of living, I chose because I could walk to a movie theater. And now if it's not Avengers or Star Wars or whatever the one's called where, where uh, Vin Diesel drives around and talks about family, Fast and the Furious, I, I won't see that actually, but like it has to be that level of a movie to make me even consider a movie theater. So when you join Seven Investing, you don't just get our picks. I know that's the first thing a lot of people go to. I want to look at the scorecard. I want to look at the picks. Here's the reality. You also get why. The why did I make this pick? And you can get that from our recommendations. You can get that from the formal video presentations we record or we pitch each other on the stocks. You can see if someone has objections to the pick or what their questions might be, how they're answered. So we think you should be a member. That is seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. Steve, why don't you throw out one other thing you think our members absolutely love? Uh, I mean, in addition to the the recommendations, the the deep dives we do where we talk about them, advisor updates and such, uh, being able to contact us directly. Uh, we answer your questions. It's not bots. Uh, I had someone this weekend say, wait, was any part of this response automated? Because if it was, tell me how you did it. Like, this is crazy. And uh, <laughs> so it, it, we we personally respond to every message we receive. If you want to contact us, uh, if you're a member, go to uh, just email us at info at seveninvesting.com. That's almost always me. Uh, but a couple of us have access to that email address. So we check it often. You can also find us on Twitter at, at 7investing. And uh, that's uh, another place where we're interacting with people regularly. So uh, yeah, we and are, I will, are yeah, small enough that we can still do that. I will say for our members, questions on specific stocks are best handled in our members only live call. Uh, so we, we make that available to you after the fact. It, it's live for members on the third Friday of every month. We go 11 to 1230. We actually push mm -hmm. 7 Investing now back a little bit because of that. We do a live show at 1230. That's where you can ask about specific stocks. If you have questions about our service, if you want to know about an industry trend, if you would wish we would write about something or wonder if we have, you can ask us those questions. Of course, we use Yext on 7investing. So if you type into our search engine, um, I don't know, let me pick one we talked about publicly last week uh, on 7investing now. If you type uh, what's up with the Peloton treadmill, there is a decent chance that Yext will return you uh, the transcript for the 7investing now. We talked about that or the article I created that goes with that. Uh, so we are working really hard at 7investing to make our content discoverable. It's a work in progress, sometimes sending us an email and we can then send you a link, but we are a small team. We all like doing this. We challenge each other in a pleasant way. I will say it was a little bit quieter than normal this weekend because it was Mother's Day, but pretty much at all hours of every day, we're asking questions about companies, we're talking about things, we're posting photos of what we're doing because we don't just spend all our time you know, focused on investing. But this is actually a team of people that likes being around each other. And that yeah. comes out on this show. Uh, and I actually think it's really important to our investing style because if you don't like your coworker and they challenge your opinion on something, you can take that defensively. If Steve challenges my thoughts on something because he has a different thought, that's always taken as, oh, this other smart guy has a different thought. You know, I'm sharing that perspective with you because a lot of analysts, a lot of people who do what we do are in a competitive setting 
we are not competing with each other. We might tease about our scorecards, but we fully understand, you know, that like someone like Max Chatsko is making picks for a very long term, where sometimes like something I pick might be up, but it might be up for really dumb reasons and not the reason that's in my thesis. Um, so we're really able to push each other to better layers of thought. And that's where uh, Daniel Kern's comment comes in. Uh, Daniel Kern 79, it says, and Sam, if you want to bring that up, that's super useful information about the, the insider selling of uh, SPCE. Thanks, you two. Yeah, that's what we do. Like, I probably listen to 10 times more earnings calls uh, than I did when I was writing much more frequently because I need to actually bring value. I need to do something that you can't get for free. Uh, and that is what we do. Like, I, I'm heading off to a to our other house, we're, we're closing on our condo, uh, not closing, I worry with the inspection on our condo Tuesday and I'm driving up for it because I, I bought a property I haven't seen. I'm gonna be listening to earnings calls during that instead of podcasts. That is not something I particularly enjoy doing, but as time allows, that's what's gonna be happening. But Steve, we're gonna hit the home stretch here. And this is one we we were gonna do on Friday's show, but I actually had internet issues. So, so we, we kind of ended the show early. It was a very fun show to do outside with wildlife crawling on me and, a lot of people at the resort wondering what the heck I was doing sitting with a laptop talking loudly outside. Uh, but that being said, I was going to ask everybody, give an example of a stock you decided to sell and why. This comes out of, we don't issue sell recommendations all that often, but that doesn't mean we never sell a stock. So Steve, what is a stock you have sold recently and why did you sell it? Sold recently might be a hard question because I haven't sold any um, stuff. Yeah, that, recently, yeah that, so. that's that, that's true. What is a stock you have sold historically? Well? <laughs> Let, let's um, let's let's go way back to the beginning, and and I think this this kind of uh, demonstrates a, a couple of dis different lessons. The first stock I ever owned was Marvel Entertainment, right? And and this is that's the funny thing is I'll, I'll look at my you know tax returns, and <laughs> sometimes there'll be no stocks that I sold. And it's like, I'm an investor for a living. I'm not this person who does 40 trades a day. Uh, but let's go back to, to Marvel Entertainment. First stock I ever owned, I sold it when Disney announced their acquisition. Of it. <laughs> and, and it was like, I woke up and it was up 38% or whatever that day. And I was like, ah, what's good? You know, did, what happened? What's This is crazy. And I see Disney's acquiring it. And I was annoyed because it was one of my favorite companies. And I did not want, this is what, 2009, something like that. Um, in 2006, I don't know, but yeah, uh, the, the, it, Disney, it was, the Disney turnaround was not evident. Dis, Disney uh, was a, was a yeah. strong company in the in the theme park space, right? Even even there, that was before Universal Studios was pushing them. So mm -hmm. Disney Disney was largely neglecting its U.S. parks and like yeah. rides would close and they would put in character meet and greets because they didn't have. It was really Harry Potter at Universal and yeah. the acquisition of. Of Marvel, which you know happened after the acquisition of, of Pixar, but Pixar was kind of just Disney buying something it was already distributing. Marvel yeah. was a massive deal, but I don't think we knew how big a deal that was at the time. No, and, and I knew it was a, a fantastic value, and that's why I was annoyed is because I wanted more out of it, right? And I was I didn't want a thirty percent pop. I wanted you know a ten bagger, and I see Disney acquired for four billion, and I was like, ugh, and I sold it, took my profits, moved on. And I should have 
done some research and said, okay, you know, Disney has Pixar, they have Marvel. This could be a start of a longer term trend. This is obviously before Lucasfilm uh, they brought in and uh, before Fox, the <laughs> mammoth acquisition, of course, and Disney plus and, and uh, you know, there's so many different growth, growth levers that Disney's demonstrated and sort of this historically uh, really impressive acquisitive streak uh, since then. And that's one of those things where I think I learned not to, uh, not to underestimate the ability of large companies to continue to grow larger. And Disney has made some incredible returns. And, and I haven't gone back and tracked to see what I did with that stake in Marvel since then. And I'm sure it's performed fine. But uh, I would have been just as well off, I think, if I would have just taken the cash portion of the deal, put that to work and taken the stock in Disney and held on to it. So uh, that's something that I think we really need. You really need to examine uh, when companies you own get acquired uh, to determine whether you feel like selling uh, and you should or not. This can actually be a very difficult choice because let's go back to Disney at that time. Right. Disney at that time was doing really well with Pixar movies, was having occasional hits with its own sort of, you know, IP, the, the, the you know, princess movies. But yeah. it was not a movie powerhouse. When the first Iron Man movie came out, I grew up as an Iron Man fan. That was one of the comic books I read. So I was really mm -hmm. excited to see it. It was good enough to earn a sequel. It did reasonably well at the box office. It was not until... I wouldn't even say first Avengers. I would actually say guardians of the galaxy became a hit that you went, Oh my God, Disney could take any character in this. It went the right movie, have a billion dollar film. And yeah. I wrote something. I, I get called about this to this day, but I wrote a piece uh, for, for Motley fool where, where I used to work. And I yeah. basically said, guardians of the galaxy is going to make about, you know, 300 million domestic. I forget the number. And I used the comp of the captain America movie, or maybe the sequel. And I basically said, this is what this movie did. This movie has the Disney credibility, but who nobody knows who the guardians of the galaxy are. And I got lambasted. I got probably 2000 Twitter pokes. of like, <laughs> no, this is a great cinematic property. This is going to be a huge hit. And my analysis was actually technical. Like it wasn't emotional. Like it was basically saying nobody, like regular people aren't going to see this. It's going to be a big hit in the Disney comic book world. When that movie came out and was a billion dollar blockbuster, that was my month basically answering. That article's actually been quoted uh, in one of the more famous theme park sites, uh, you know, as somebody getting it wrong. So we're not right every time. <laughs> I, I stand yeah. by my analysis. I actually think uh, it was correct. And actually, Steve, I actually don't think you made a mistake there. Like as, mm -hmm. as much as I, I you know, I, I'm a big fan of Disney and a, and a, and a shareholder yeah. back then, I don't think Disney was clearly a buy unless you were prescient and you knew that not only were these going to be such big hits that they, they sort of rebuild the movie division, that mm -hmm. they were actually going to be valuable property in the theme park world. Obviously there's yeah. some issues with that, with their, their deal with universal in Orlando, you know, but you have Avengers campus uh, that just opened at the is just opening at Disneyland. You, you have a guardians of the galaxy roller coaster uh, going in at Epcot. So I don't think anyone could have seen it. Uh, and you probably put your money into some, Something that I don't know the exact years, but the first few years of that deal, you actually probably did better. Like it took a while yeah. for those to get, you know, you don't make movies quickly. I, I'm going to, I'll give you the last word on this one. <laughs> yeah. So and it was funny. You mentioned an old article that our, our former employer and actually uh, it reminded me of an article that I wrote because it took me a few years to sort of uh, start to understand what it really meant uh, and what they were doing. And uh, I wrote an article called 26,000 reasons to love Disney. 
And it was about the individual characters, right? There's 9,000 characters in the Marvel universe. There's 17,000 unique characters in the Star Wars universe. A lot of people don't know that. And uh, it was sort of a how long can Disney keep this up kind of thing, making new movies? Well, indefinitely, really. And uh, it, it took me a few years. But yeah, and I guess with the information that I had at the time, uh, maybe I made the right decision and I probably did just fine. But that's that's an interesting kind of example uh, of, of a stock that I've sold and why. And most often it's something like an acquisition or something has gone terribly wrong, which thankfully hasn't happened. But uh, what about you? A stock that you decided to sell and why? Yeah, so, so so there's only one that I could think of in the past six years. Uh, and I've talked about this before, so I won't go on about it too much. But mm-hmm. uh, in the early days of the pandemic, I sold my WWE stock. Uh, and why did I do it? So it, it's not a secret that I'm a pro wrestling fan. So I follow the ins and outs of that. I like the business side of it, frankly, more than I like the product. And there were a number of sort of well-known globally pro wrestlers in WWE uh, that wanted before the pandemic to be released by the company. That means let out of their contract uh, so they could go work elsewhere. And sometimes WWE would rather just keep you on the shelf and keep paying you than let you go to to its competitors. At the time, it had fledgling competitors. Uh, now it has sort of stronger competitors uh, with with AEW on, on TNT, with, uh, with, with New Japan paying decent money in Japan. That there are places for people to go and get work. And that's often at a pay cut but it can be more satisfying. And they said no to a lot of people who wanted to leave and just basically ice them out or use them badly to to diminish their brand. There were also a few acts uh, that they said, hey, I know you're making 300 grand a year as your your guarantee. Uh, How about 750 and we'll give you a five-year contract? Well, a lot of those guys didn't want to sign those contracts, but responsibly had to. And then the pandemic hit and the opportunity to work elsewhere went away But WWE revenue did not go away. Television is the overwhelming largest source of their revenue. And now they're they're deal with NBC Peacock for their their former network. So they actually took away an expense that was touring, which sold merchandise, but wasn't generally a moneymaker on the ticket sales basis. And they put their show for the beginning of the pandemic. They were just doing it from their training center. Now they have the added expense that they're doing it in arenas with one arena with like thousands of monitors. And it's actually a little more expensive. Not only did they let go a whole bunch of wrestlers who did not have the opportunity to go do like, you know, indie shows in high school gyms or join, you know, lesser federations on on smaller contracts or go to Mexico or Japan. Basically, they said, hey, sorry, you're out of work and and probably no one's going to hire you. They also sent home a lot of their producers and writers and travel people that they weren't going to need. And these are people making, you know, if they used to be famous, maybe they're making 200 grand a year. If it's like a secretary that like books travel for executives, maybe that's someone making 50 grand living in, you know, Stanford, Connecticut, which is an incredibly expensive place to live uh, with not a lot of options nearby. I just thought it was reprehensible and it kind of took my thoughts about like, geez, if this was such a great company and I understand yeah. the business model is great, I had opportunities to, to interview there and I didn't. Uh, and this is when I was you know, not having a cool job like this because I knew it wasn't a great place to work. Uh, it has a reputation as being a 24-7 incredibly demanding place to work. If I was 22, I'd probably want to work there. Um, this sort of said, wait a minute, this company is thinking about its stock above its employees. And I actually think you can do both. I think, you know, we saw it with Southwest Airlines 
Why do you protect those employees? Yeah. It's not purely out of generosity. It's because right now, as we're getting back to travel, you know who can add locations? You know who can ask pilots to, to do uncomfortable trips and itineraries and maybe fly to places other than their home base? Southwest, because they built up that credibility. They treated people well. This, to me, was an absolute low blow to their employees, uh, and I did not like it. Other than that, the only times I would sell uh, would be if I owned something that I bought at a very low price or small position, if it truly blew up. And the reason it blew up was one of two things. It played out my thesis and I no longer see the growth opportunity, or it blew up to beyond my thesis for a dumb reason. I've talked about this a lot. If I own GameStop, because I believed, you know, before this whole retail investor thing happened, if I believed that they had the balance sheet and they did to pivot their business to something else, uh, and it could be a two or three times growth stock in a couple of years, uh, and then it goes up 800%, well, you sell because you only believed it was gonna go up 300% uh, and you don't, you cannot make a case for what it actually did. We don't sell a lot. We appreciate all of you watching. Uh, we're gonna stick with the wrestling terminology here uh, and hit our finisher. I, I'm sure, Steve, there are people that don't know what that term is, but a finisher <laughs> is in pro wrestling. It's like your big move that usually ends the match. Uh, which CEO do you believe will lead his company to the strongest stock gains in the next 12 months? Uh, our audience, overwhelmingly, not overwhelmingly, but strongly thought it would be Elon Musk with about 40%. Uh, Tim Cook came in next with uh, 23%. 31% said Satya Nadella. And about 5.9% said Reed Hastings, co-CEO of, uh, of Netflix. There wasn't enough room to put both CEOs there. Uh, Steve, I'm actually going to argue, if I had to bet, when you bet, you have to consider the downside. So yeah. you have to consider, you know, what if the pitcher for this baseball team I'm betting on tweaked his elbow last time and he comes out and he gets hurt or he's not right? You have to consider that. I actually think Microsoft is the steadiest ship here. And mm -hmm. the downside on Elon Musk is... While he didn't do anything on Saturday Night Live that was crazy, he could do something that you know that is not going to be beneficial to its, right. the company's stock. On I'm being really careful with my words here because uh, I don't want to you know you know imply you know any sort of mental health issues. But it is fair to say he is not always operating in the best interest of of his share price uh, in terms of what he tweets and how he operates. So I actually think if if all things are equal, Tesla probably wins this. But if you're making a bet and where you'd have the, the strongest, you know, the best company with also the least chance of a big misstep, I would say yeah. Microsoft. But what are your thoughts here? Oh, th this is a harder decision than I, than I think I, I thought it would be. I would narrowly vote for Elon Musk, uh, if only for the upside. I think there's some really interesting upside uh, in that global demand for their vehicles remains strong. There's some factories coming online um, and there's uh, some of the, the battery storage and, uh, and, and energy stuff could serve as incremental value opportunities, but also we're looking at the chip storage or chip shortage uh, that is kind of restricting um, some production that uh, I think could be really interesting as they kind of unleash things. So I would narrowly vote for Elon Musk and his company, Tesla. Uh, I would, I, I guess, a close second is uh, Nadella. I think Microsoft is, is uh, well, and, and yeah, so I, I guess... I, I go Musk, Nadella, Cook, Hastings. I guess if I'm going to vote there. Microsoft could easily have been IBM. It could have been GE. It could have been one of these uh, stumbling dinosaurs that never found its way. And I, I don't, Steve Ballmer actually gets blamed too much because some of what 
uh, Microsoft's doing in the cloud. Some of it uh, taking down its walls and and you know being on Android and being on, on Macs, I think actually does trace back to Balmer. And I, I worked yeah. there. Uh, and and the scariest thing is when you're on an email chain with Balmer and you absolutely know you're on the chain, but you are not allowed to reply. Like there is zero chance. Like because when we were launching uh, what was then the Windows 8 finance news and sports apps the only audience for like the first like three months were like a group of Microsoft executives. So you would see emails and you had to like, no one had to tell you this. You just had to know, like I was at the movies once and a very higher up was like the, the, the site crashed. I, I, I was in Bellevue, Washington at the time uh, on, on campus where my team was. And it was a Saturday. I left the movie, went to the office, uh, didn't have access to get in the door, had to like talk my way into like a cleaning guy and figured out how to like get our, our tech team, which, who were in India and probably asleep on the phone. Not that it mattered. There was no public audience, but you don't want the bosses of the company to think no one cares when the yeah. product goes down. I don't think you can go wrong with any of these. 12 months is not the timetable we generally look at uh, here, but I actually am a pretty big believer in let's have fun with Twitter polls. Uh, I am not a giant fan of people who answer the Twitter polls with like, what about so-and-so? Uh, right. I, like the, I like the discussion, but they limit you to four. I, I tried to pick four that go well together. Steve, this has been fun. Well, um, one more note on ahead. this. Go ahead, um, absolutely. Uh, again, on, on Tesla, I, I'm, I'm pulling Tim Cook's one more thing, right? Well, it's not really <laughs> Tim Cook's one more thing, but uh, you know what I mean. Uh, I, I would say, while I think maybe Tesla has the most upside over the next 12 months, potentially it also probably has the most downside. And uh, that's that's one of those things. And, and at 7investing, we're looking at uh, time periods of, of you know, three years at least. And, and that's kind of what we're uh, what we're viewing uh, when we think that. So uh, like you mentioned, uh, next 12 months, not ideal. Um, but that's also uh, an important note that a lot of people are looking at, you know, I'm going to buy this and it's going to go up in two months. Uh, that's not how long-term investing works. And it's, it's, you might be sorely disappointed, especially, um, you know, with, with the way the market's been treating a lot of stocks lately. Uh, you can find yourself way up or way down. Uh, Near-term volatility is pretty, pretty rough. We, we've talked about this a lot. Um, it's one of those things where what happens in the short term doesn't matter. We talked about this on this show. When I look at an earnings report, I don't know when Netflix reports, but let's let's assume, uh, I don't even know, maybe they've already, oh no, I think they've already reported. When I go through the Netflix earnings transcript, which is something I will do, it's a, it's a company I follow, I'll listen to that call. I'm not looking for what happened in the past quarter. I'm looking for what the long-term trend is. So if Netflix says, yep, we've decided to invest uh, more production in India, that means more to me. You know, What's the color? Are, are they expecting to add 10 million subscribers there? Is it a, a higher subscription cost, a lower subscription cost? Where is this going to be in five years? When you look at companies that are spending billions of dollars, as Netflix does, it's the roadmap that matters, not necessarily yeah. the short term results. But with that, uh, we are running out of time. This was uh, not the episode I expected it to be. Uh, and, and I appreciate it going in all sorts of exciting directions as my earbud falls out of my ear. Uh, but if you'd like to get in touch with us, we can be reached at info at seveninvesting.com. Uh, that is usually Steve on the email. I don't have access to it. Uh, so it's never going to be me. Uh, we all sort of do different things on the team. Uh, or you can converse with us at 7investing on Twitter. Always happy uh, to talk about investing trends uh, or, or give some perspective. Um, Steve, we will be back on Wednesday. I don't even know who's on the show yet. We haven't even planned that one out, uh, but we will, of course, 
I'll be live Wednesday at noon. For Steve Simonson, for Sam Bailey, I am Dan Klein. Thank you for watching. See you Wednesday. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.